My hope today uh, in the larger partnership of Jewett at Home and of our commitment to learning about Musar and about Midot um, is to focus on moral courage. Um, and so I wanted to uh, give permission, of course, throughout the entire uh, teaching session to really welcome your voices. Um, uh, Rabbi Schatz is going to help I think probably recognize people if they are raising their hands, virtual or otherwise, and we'll sort of unmute people as needed. But since we are potentially coming from different communities around uh, the United States, um, when you respond, if we can invite you, and I may interrupt you to say your name and maybe what community or what city you're representing, that would be wonderful as well. Uh, So the first one, uh, the first question I'll say, and then I'm going to screen share uh, some of the texts for today, is um, why are you interested in cultivating moral courage at this time of year? Um, and again, I want to note, uh, with every week that passes, we are getting closer and closer to Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. So I think, again, part of our efforts right now are about preparing in advance um, why are you interested? Let's get a couple of responses in cultivating moral courage now. Um, I'm Jay from Temple Israel, Long Beach. And I think what makes me want to do this is, especially with the craziness that's going on in the world right now, I want to be solid and ready for the holidays. So sort of a, a, potentially a theme of courage as stability and courage as a way to navigate forward. Good, other responses. And I see people are gonna use the chat too, that's great. Audrey Thacker just wrote in, the times we are living in require it. Audrey, if you can chat it up as well, I would just say these times more than like six months ago, these times more than any other time in your experience, is there any difference today demanding moral courage than in the past? Or for you, is it, this is a moment? Uh, I think, can you hear me? I can. Okay. I think that it's, uh, we've always required moral courage. There are always challenges. Um, We're all human. So the challenge is always there. But we just have such a confluence of events and things going on right now, mm-hmm. right now being, yes, maybe in the last six months or so, right, that have brought that challenge to the fore for everybody. That's great. So, yeah, thank you, Audrey, for those words. Because I, I do, sometimes it's helpful to also make a distinction that um, there's sort of a lifetime commitment that many of us hope we have to cultivating moral courage that every day, whether it's a holiday or an ordinary day, still may require a, a, a mustering and a, a digging deep for that sense of moral courage. Um, and there may be something unique about this moment in our lives as well. So, is that the same I'm, cultivation or is it an accelerated course? Uh, Judith, so, I yeah, so I, I think that, that for me, it's easy it's easy to have moral courage sitting in your house. Um, but would I, would I risk going out to have to do something um, during this time? And that's a, an, another level of moral courage that, um, that you know, I, I think I have to come. Right, right. And that's going to be perfect, uh, Judith, for when our first text is going to I think try to really focus on what does it mean when you as an individual feel you are being called and are not yet sure what your response is going to be, right? When it becomes deeply personal, 
that you are being asked to do something. So Karen said, how would you define moral courage? I'm not even sure I have the definition so much as um, there is a sense, I think from all of you logging on, <laughs> that it, that phrase, whether it's about courage or about something around morality and courage intersecting, that you would like to try to explore. So before we try to overdefine it, I would just say, let's keep going with what is it that you, what, why now do you need this thing called moral courage? I see a couple more hands. The, the political and, and social situation now going on, uh, the unrest, um, yep. the, the racial um, uh, fraction in the society, uh, mm -hmm. all give us pause and um, raise the question about what we should be doing and how we should be um, initiating change. Mm -hmm. And Eddie, say like the, the obvious thing, of course, is like, what happens when you try to change a system <laughs> or try to undo generations of racism? Like what is the inevitable result? Not just peace and freedom, but like, why is it so hard to stand up and try to change an entire system? I think it's our, um, our own biases, our own um, hesitancy to um, uh, move to the unknown mm -hmm. and to how it will affect society. And then there's the pushback, the inevitable pushback. That's right. That's right. So, right, so two just obvious things, but it's really important to always think about. It's not... I would never make any assumptions that the reasons for us not displaying moral courage is because um, we don't always, you know, we, we, we're afraid or we're, we are trying to do what is right in the world. I give all of us that credit. The challenge is right on the other side of us potentially doing what is right. As Eddie said, there is pushback. This stuff does not, like, it's not like the Messiah comes the minute we step forward and finally do that as which is most, most courageous. Um, it's not as if people say, oh, thank God you were right. I didn't realize it all this time. Thanks for bringing me that information, right? There's pushback and there's the unknown right on the other side of dismantling something that has been oppressing people right on the other side of standing up for what is right is likely you having destroyed something that was at least holding everything together, whether it's a relationship or a system of power or a set of people in office, you right? By nature of turning things around, um, you are willingly going into the wilderness. Um, and that is terrifying. Um, so again, part of why we need to cultivate moral courage is not just to get our voices ready, but it's to endure what comes right on the other side of using our voice and using our power. Uh, I can see Renee has her hand up. Yeah. So I think of it as cheshbon um, nefesh, I guess, what we've been talking about a lot for Rosh Hashanah, and the need to, in spite of all the difficulties of what's going on in the world, um, and worrying about ourselves, the importance of also uh, being morally responsible for others who are less fortunate. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we've done at our show has been to connect to those people that are elderly or alone and just kind of touch base with them and see how, how they're doing and if there's anything that they need. Mm -hmm. And I've been neglecting my job. Can you say what synagogue you're from? Uh, and uh, 
where your beach is. No, I'm kidding. I know it's back. <laughs> I'm from Bethlehem. My beach is just my fantasy, unfortunately. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Okay, great. We can make it Tel Aviv, though, because that's where I'd love to be. That would be amazing. Yes, thank you. Perfect. Uh, other responses? And again, I, I did forget. Uh, Jay did it in the beginning, and then we sort of dropped off. But where, what synagogues are you representing, or what, where in the United States are you calling in from? Rabbi Schatz, did you see a few more hands? Hi, I'll, I'll speak. Is okay? Yeah, go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, I, um, Madeline Wolf, Temple Isaiah, Los Angeles, California. So I think it's an interesting time to, be, to look at a moral uh, compass for ourselves. You know, we all went to sleep in March one, one night, and life was okay, and we woke up in a pandemic and racial unrest. And part of that has made us really look into see who we are. And the moral ethic part on racism is looking at our own racism that we didn't even know we had. Like I woke up one morning, suddenly I found out I was a racist. Well, I have to really look at that and that's a complicated thing. And it takes a shift in my um, education, the way I was raised and my moral compass is swiftly changing. And it's difficult because you can say, say think one thing one day and the other day, next day it may not be appropriate so it's really a whirlwind of how to find the moral code within ourselves thank you uh i wasn't sure if anyone else had their hands up i see barbara and then millie and then maybe we'll look at our first text i I don't think it has anything to do with moral courage or morality or anything it has to do with doing something during the time that you're stuck in your house and in my case it also adds to the fact that it helps me avoid doing work that I should be doing that I've been putting off for four months. Mm. Thank you. And Barbara, what community are you representing? I said Bethon. Oh, Bethon. Thank you. Perfect. I actually did say it. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I missed it. Great. Wonderful. Hi, uh, I'm Millie, Millie Lineband, and I am coming through uh, Temple Emmanuel of Beverly Hills. I reunite with them after a number of years that I was uh, disconnected. Uh, so I'm welcome back. Thank you so much. Um, I live in Sherman Oaks in the Valley, and since it's being mentioned right now, I am actually personally experiencing hatred towards my background as a Jewish woman uh, in my own neighborhood, in my own building. So that's really something that I, you know, it's completely new. I've been living here for a number of years, and I was completely unaware that there was these feelings. Mm. Um, Thank you for sharing. Thank thank you. you. So I want to screen share now um, uh, from Safaria. So this will be available later uh, uh, for people to look at as well. Can everyone see? Hopefully you're nodding. Um, yeah, great. Okay. So I want to look at this first text from Leviticus. Um, very famous text, um, which, uh, again, oftentimes, um, you know, we sort of, we teach very, we teach to all ages, Lota Amod al-Dam do not stand by the blood of your fellow, Ani Adonai, I am Adonai, your God. Um, but I want to just sit with that for a second, and I put underneath it in purple, wait, what? You meant me? <laughs> because I think sometimes we have 
we sort of, we're able to go through life where we feel like the commandments from our tradition or the commandments from our community or from our leadership um, sort of go out as we often do over social media, over a temple-wide email, um, over the newspapers, right? It's sort of like talking to all of us and therefore it doesn't actually have to talk to any of us. Um, but what happens when you actually wake up and realize, I think, I think they meant me. Whatever the voice of commanding is. Um, you know, Madeline said she woke up one day and realized, like, I think when we're talking about racism, they meant me. Um, I think that um, Millie just said, like, all of a sudden now it's not anti-Semitism is happening. It's actually like, it's me. It's my story now. And so what does it mean when we realize this is what God intended. I am talking to you as individuals. Um, do you feel um, that the minute that you have this awareness that you are ready to respond or historically when the call comes, right? And if we think back to some of our best biblical characters, some of them did great. Abraham got the call and Abraham said, Hineni. I'm ready to go. Jonah got the call and Jonah the prophet said, I got a boat to catch in the other direction. <laughs> so when you feel as if you have finally gotten the call, and again, the call could be from your neighbor who's saying, I need you to start doing more to be active in the world, or could be from a community member who says there are people crying out in pain. We need you to do more. Um, what historically has been your response when you realize the call is for you? Are you leaning more towards Abraham? You are ready to go. Or do you lean more towards Jonah and you feel as if, I don't know that I'm ready. I don't know that I'm prepared. I don't know that I can do this. What are your initial reactions to that deep personalization? Audrey wrote that Moses thought he couldn't answer the call, but God told him that God would be with him. Mm. And for that type of, I'm pulling it up now. Yes. Thank you, Audrey. Um, do you think from what you know of the story, did that make the difference? Think about the Moses story. You're absolutely right. Moses refused to the burning bush and said, I know, I know you, you're picking me out, but I think you've got the wrong guy. And God said, don't worry, I'll be with you. Was that enough for Moses? What do you remember about the story? So I would, we're going to get back to this question of God's presence in our lives later and in the lives of our ancestors, but I would say it is a very consistent Jewish theme in our stories that when God assures us that God is with us, or when a prophet reminds us, God is with you, or when a elder reminds us, don't worry, God is with you, <laughs> we're supposed to feel better. I would argue, who else did Moses take along? possibly to make him feel a lot more certain that he might be able to do this. Mm -hmm. His brother, right? There's a horizontal and a vertical relationship. Exactly, Audrey. Uh, a voice from heaven would help. I agree, right? The, the vertical relationship of God commanding and of saying, I mean you, Nina. I mean you, Nancy. I'm not talking to anyone else. <laughs> this is a highly personalized call is really helpful to know now is the time I have to step forward. But historically, what we know to be true from what our own ancestors preserved is that even when it's a personalized call, 
we still don't always feel as if we are prepared, ready, or able to do it. And therefore, there are ways that we can expand that moment. We can bring a family member or a trusted friend. We can, as Jonah provided, no, wait, I saw Nancy's hand go up. Nancy's hand is still there. Hold on, Nancy, you're gonna go next. We can also give ourselves a few more chapters, metaphorically, to figure out how to get there. So I would just argue the first two things I want to say is one is about making the space and the time to realize you actually are being called. You, Martha Sklar, you, Paulette Benson, you, Irene Smukler, you are being called. The second, though, is once you've been called, it doesn't have to result in an Abrahamic moment of I'm ready, send me, I'll do it. A lot of our history proves it takes a little bit of time to absorb the call, to believe in the call, and then to figure out how you move from being called to being the one who now is acting. Okay, Nancy, go ahead. Uh, Yeah, Nancy Goldstone from Temple Beth Am in Los Angeles. So I, I really related to your talking about, you know, who did Moses take with him? Because I think what makes it so much easier for me to be prepared is that I have a large group of people um, who I consider brothers and sisters to do this with, but it's already, it's already easier because it's a structure for me. Yeah. Yeah. Family of choice or biological family. I'd say they both, right. Serve. uh, They serve a really important role that we also have to get over. I think at times the narrative that moral courage is somehow like uniquely and solely heroic as if like only one person steps forward with a cape and the muscles and to say like, I will save the day. When in fact, as I'm learning from my children and their inheritance of comic books, uh, there are these whole teams. There's a justice league. It turns out <laughs> there's the fabulous four, right? There is a, there is a story that we also need to tell as Jews. That is not just Moses so far out in front of everyone else that he loses touch with the people, but rather an entire tribe that discovers moral courage together. Yes, there is Nachshon historically who jumped into the water and let it part. The rabbis love that story. But there was an entire group of people that had to also figure out how to walk together. Um, And I think that's the balance, again, between some of the romanticization of courage being one person, Rosa Parks, sitting on a bus versus all of the people who participated in the bus boycott and our own sort of desire. Can we feel called? But can we feel called with other people coming with us? So other reactions. I was very impressed uh, once with the observation that uh, although Moses says, I can't speak uh, without my brother there because he is, you know, um, more capable of talking than I am. In in the actual text, if we look at it, it's not uh, Aaron says on Moses' behalf. It's always Moses says to the people. Moses speaks um, to uh, Pharaoh, and Moses uh, speaks to the people, and his brother maybe is there next to him, but we never, his brother doesn't speak for him. And I always thought that was an interesting relationship about siblings and 
uh, courage that sometimes somebody else's presence um, gives one courage, mm-hmm. uh, even if they don't actually, you know, do anything. Great. Yeah. Great, great. And when we, again, sometimes we worry we don't have the right words, as Moses did, as many of us do today. Um, but what words, literally the irony being, what words might we find in ourselves, even if the person next to us silently is simply saying, I am with you? And how does that generate a sense of purpose and of courage? Beautiful. There were a whole bunch of hands. Rebecca, did you keep track of them or do you want me to? It looks like Judy still has her hand up. And then I, I believe Frumi had her hand up, but doesn't yep, anymore. And Nina so. also, and Judith has a virtual hand. Okay. Yeah. And then Larry Selk is the bet. Bonnie. Bonnie. <laughs> Um, so, okay. I, I can't see everybody. Um, here, I'll stop the share. Okay. Yeah. Nina, why don't you, oh, great. Nina, why don't you go first? Cause you're the first hand I saw. Okay. Okay. I'm Nina and I'm with Temple Isaiah in Los Angeles. Um, I think there are two different times. I, I, I think right now, this particular time for many, many people, I know for me, it's been really being part of groups and networks and feeling like I'm not alone in approaching what's going on outside, whether it's doing every voice, every vote, where we're all supporting it and we're all moving ahead and doing that. But I think there's also what, and I know I'm trying to think of an incident in my life, but I'm thinking about people who are whistleblowers and I've never been a whistleblower, but my husband's certainly been with the federal government and I think about that there are instances in which we see morally wrong things that are morally wrong. I might have at some point, I don't remember, in the school system, let's say, where I saw something which I saw that was really, really, really not right. And I might have gone to a principal and said, you know. So I think it, I think we're right now in a particularly time where we might turn as a group or feel more comfortable with a group. I think it's very hard to be a whistleblower or to go in and be the first one to say, I think this young woman in Georgia who did what she did, it was what, 17 years old or 15, 16, she was a teenager. Wow. What moral courage, what an example of seeing something and being not afraid to stand up. And she said she would have done it again. So I think those are examples of two different kinds, but they're all moral courage. It's just where can we act alone and where can we, where are we more comfortable as a group? Yeah. And Nina, just to your point, in case we don't get to this text later on, one of the things that I was thinking about was how do we teach the next generation what moral courage looks like? And it's always subjective. So to the point of Karen earlier, said, what is moral courage? Is What does it mean in your family? There was a very famous, I think it was a New York Times article years ago that talked about the importance of parents telling their kids, not just the stories of their greatest triumphs, but also of their greatest failures. So that kids grew up understanding that triumph and failure made for a complete life and that there, that you you continue to strive and fail. And that is how you grow up into a good person. Um, I would say the same for how often in your families are you talking about personal stories of moral courage, collective stories, and then to the point of Nina saying this girl in Georgia, is that a new story that's meaningful for Nina where she sees that and goes, that, that's moral courage. How do I tell that story? Um, because you can always go to the, the biggest names if you don't have the sort of smaller examples. 
Um, but I think part of recognizing moral courage and learning how to practice it with a sense of confidence is remembering again that if the history book doesn't have a chapter with our name on it, as it were, that's okay. <laughs> like we are still capable of making an impact on people's lives and of changing the world um, simply by, again, practicing the courage within our own story. Um, so thank you, Nina, for that. Uh, Rebecca, I'm going to defer to you again. Yeah, Bonnie. Um, I'm feeling a couple of things. One is a sense of impotency, impotency um, because of where I am age-wise and career-wise and with requirements of care for others. I feel that I can't do what I would like to do. And so it feels rather uncourageous that I can't step out. And also, I feel a sense of sadness because it seems like we've been fighting this fight for so long. I'm, um, you know, all the things that I did in the 60s and we're still faced with all of that. And sometimes it's just, it's overwhelming. Um, and yet, you know, my husband and I both told stories of what we did in those, in those days to our kids and our grandkids. But, um, and I do small things, but like I say, maybe it's the pandemic that just seems to crunch me these days um, with a sense of, of not being able to do enough. Mm -hmm. Yep. And some of our best Jewish teachings um, to the sense of um, like, right? Like the, you can't, you have to stay in the work. I think because the Jewish tradition understood from thousands of years ago that they too probably had moments of thinking, didn't we take anti-Semitism? Like every generation is like, no, we did it. <laughs> we, we figured it out. We, we got rid of it. We made it. And then we get hit again by the next wave. Um, and I don't think it's because we're not paying attention. I just think it's because we, God blessed us with hearts that believe that we can make profound change as human beings and that we can advance towards a world filled with justice and peace. And I don't think I would ever want to take that away from our hearts and souls and minds to believe in that. Um, and yet um, we need endurance. And, and some aspect of practicing moral courage is about filling up the gas tank again. Uh, it's, about, it's about letting in the pain and the heartbreak of of, of just, again, like you said, I think many people feel this. Um, I can't believe we're doing this again. <laughs> um, and waking up again to a very grounded reality of, okay, so here we are. And who is with us now that wasn't with us before? That's always, again, I think a perspective shift of um, think about who builds your team now. Um, because those people, again, in biblical language, uh, are your tribe. Um, uh, okay, so... Uh, there were more, more hands. So let's do a few more hands. And I'm going to go back to what happens when you take on the ultimate source of power. Judy, did you want to share? You had a hand up. Yeah, I, but, you know, when you talk about courage, I think some things don't take courage to do. They're just sort of easy. Mm -hmm. um, Example? When you talk about courage, well, you know, writing the postcards. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a good thing to do. I'm not putting it down. But it doesn't take courage to write. Yeah, for you, it's not, that's not courage. What is courage? For courage, one of the most, um, I don't know, the events that occurred uh, that really affected me were when the three uh, Mississippi, um, when the three guys in Mississippi were murdered. 
And I have to tell you that I sort of missed that part of the 60s. I went to college, Mad Magazine had this little thing said, Brooklyn College, a hotbed of apathy. And that was sort of us. We just, I don't know where we were in our world, but most of it. But when that event occurred, it just struck me in the gut, struck me in the heart as to how much am I willing to give up? How much am I willing to risk in terms of a moral stance for something? And so to me, when we talk about moral courage, it means really having to uh, face the fact that, that, you, that there may be some serious consequences to what you do. Yes. All right, let me show one more time my screen. Hold on one second. Um, I, I think, again, to go back to, that's a great tie-in. Um, I want to just remind us of the story of Abraham challenging God around Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we, <laughs> we all know that turned out fine for him, <laughs> to be clear. Uh, so whether it was a calculated risk or whether he felt, as many of us do, that by stepping forward and using your voice to challenge authority, did he think he was digging his own grave? Um, I think all of it's true in Midrash. Uh, the many sort of insecurities and fears we have that are not, that are, that are in fact substantiated. Um, when we think about courage as that which is needed to overturn an entire system, to overturn somebody's authority. And what we know about power is that people who have it like to keep it. <laughs> and so here is God, the ruler of all, who has made a determination that Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed. And Abraham takes it upon himself to challenge God and to say, you don't want to do it this way. Right? What if there are, verse 24, 50 innocent within the city, will you wipe them out? Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to bring death upon the innocent as well as the guilty. And God says, okay, fine. Now, if you remember this back and forth, it goes all the way down to 10. So what I want to talk about for a second is how often is the desire for moral courage connected to overturning an established practice or system, disrupting a relationship or family system? So a lot of us have been talking about political moral courage, but I want to insert, I think a lot of the same desire to tell the truth, to be a whistleblower in some ways, comes down to also who in your family are you not standing up to? Um, which which practice or old habit or established norm in your friendship group or in your Jewish community have you agreed to, even though you know it is not just and it is not right? What does it mean to possibly unseat someone, whether it's a polit politician or the leader of a community or the patriarch of your family or the matriarch of your family, the person who always hosts, whatever it may be, I want to just name for a second that the part of why it feels like we need to cultivate moral courage is because to the point of Judith saying postcards are postcards and being willing to risk your life or being willing to risk giving up something that you've held on to for a long time, even if it's just, I know what I know, certainty, predictability, uh, your job, uh, your relationship with your best friend. Um, so let me stop for a second and, and say, does that resonate? 
was is the cultivation of moral courage also because there is so much at stake that courage feels like the only way to begin to say what we need to say. Nina, I can see your hand. Yeah. Well, I don't know if this is, I mean, I, I think it's an act of moral courage for a lot of people. I was able to do it. My husband and I were able to move across the country in our 60s, in our 60s, turning, you know, close to 70. Now, there were a lot of people, there were a lot of people who said, you can't do that. You know, look, what's good. this would happen, that would happen. I mean, I think that making personal choices in your life in terms of we need to change, we're going to make this change, and we're going to make it work, or it won't work. I mean, you know, and I think that it can be risky. I do talk to many friends who would like to do it or know they should do it or might need to do it, but they're really quite terrified because it's much safer to stay where you are in your own place, in your own house, and not change any of your systems. So I think that I saw that as an act of, for us of moral courage to take a chance. Yeah. So I would just say also some of the courage is, is if we don't think of it in this way, it's a two-part process. The first is the courage to even say aloud that which we want to do or that which we wish we would see change. And I would just say the second piece is navigating everything that comes on the other side of speaking your truth or making a decision, right? To move across the country is not just we're going to say out loud we're moving. It's then to do the move. And as you said, Nina, it might not go well. And how do we stay in that moment uh, fully present, navigating till we get to the next moment as well. Uh, other reactions? Does Etty and then Martha? I think um, I think there's another issue in terms of that's uh, part of this in terms of picking your battles. <laughs> you know, which ones are worth uh, taking those risks and which ones are not. Uh, and how much, you know, psychic energy and, and do you use uh, for smaller battles um, that may not be worth it? Uh, mm-hmm. And as an example, I uh, have sort of cut off um, my uncle and his, you know, significant other just because she's nuts, you know. And I and do, you know, I'm not going to change her mind. It's not worth. You know, it may be an act of moral courage to take it on and have the blowout, but it's not going to change her mind. And there are better things I could do with that moral courage in terms of affecting change than changing her mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder then if part of the definition you can help us tease out is when we want to practice this kind of courage, in some ways, it is an indication that we are deeply invested in that which we are trying to change. It really matters to us. Like, we, we, I think to your point, I, I don't know that we take a risk, to, that we risk losing everything if the person that we are taking the risk for is not actually someone that we want to keep in our life. Um, or if the system, if, de- if you are fighting for democracy and you are willing to go out into the streets and fight for it, it is an indication that you would like to be a part of that democracy. <laughs> that, that, is, that is part of why you are willing to put yourself out there, which means that um, there is a core component around courage and love or courage and fidelity, courage and um, community, um, because it's more than just about you 
saying I'm going to knock some stuff over and then run away. <laughs> it's actually about I am trying to build something that I want to be a part of with other people. Other reactions? We've had two in the chat. I didn't realize I was muted. Um, Audrey said, people become comfortable being uncomfortable. We can learn to live with things, moral, political, or otherwise, that we know are not appropriate, but about which we feel unable to change. And then Pamela, in response, said that she saw on Facebook, two things terrify me. One, change, and two, things staying the same. I think that's awesome. That's such like a great, like, <laughs> it sums it all up. Uh, Yehuda Amichai also has a poem uh, where his like final lines are like, thou shall not change and thou will change. Mm -hmm. um, th there is such tension for all of us around um, comfort and discomfort around being here and then comfort and discomfort around like whatever comes next. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would also say in, in the many years of working as a rabbi and talking with people about grief and loss, um, there is some, there is some truth that runs through that like, as much as we think grief is permanent when it is so raw and so heavy in its initial stages, it, it isn't. I mean, it changes, it morphs, it grows, it integrates. Like these moments that we think are frozen in time because it feels frozen are in fact not. Um, but we can't see that until we get a little further away from it and look back and just see how the dimensions have changed. Uh, let me show you just another text quickly because I realize it's 1042. So I want to, and these will all be again, uh, things that you can find online later as well. But um, you remember the story of Esther, um, one of our great heroines. Um, uh, so she when, she, when she realizes the command to be courageous is on her, thanks to, again, a family member. So, you know, right, I, I critiqued earlier the possibility that some of us may have family members that we need to have some honest conversations with to unseat power. But, um, but Mordechai is the one to say to Esther, it's you. Like, you, you have to be the one to do this. And so she says in verse 16, okay, go assemble all the Jews and fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, and I will go and observe the same fast. And, and this, is to, this is understood to be that she is sort of taking a spiritual retreat. Um, and that's something about those three days of introspection and of, like, denying herself food and drink and being with her maidens again. You got to have a tribe. You got to have an organizing team. Um, so I think those are all always hidden messages of how some of our greatest heroes actually do their work. Um, I found this great quote from Abraham Joshua Heschel because I think sometimes what we forget, um, even though we we are we love being Jewish, we love our Jewish communities. Um, I think sometimes we take prayer a little too lightly, um, and we forget that historically. Um, prayer was seen to be incredibly powerful and transformative and, according to Abraham Joshua Heschel, subversive. So look what Abraham Joshua Heschel said about the practice of prayer. And again, the connection is, how was Esther able to figure out how to stand in front of the king and risk her life in order to save her people? Uh, Heschel, a blessed memory, said, prayer is meaningless unless it is subversive, unless it seeks to overthrow and to ruin the pyramids of callousness hatred, opportunism, and falsehoods. The liturgical movement must become a revolutionary movement, seeking to overthrow the forces that continue to destroy the promise, the hope, and the vision. So I want to pause for a second and ask you, as spiritual practitioners, in whatever way you would interpret that, in what way has prayer 
or if you need to expand it, has Jewish ritual or practice been of service to you in generating, refueling, or cultivating moral courage? In what ways has prayer or just slightly connected Jewish ritual or practice been helpful to you in discovering and refueling your moral courage? I see Madeline's hand. Go ahead. Unmute. Okay. So every morning when I meditate, I say the um, Shema. I think for me, the ritual of prayer and the ritual that we have in our faith makes, uh, kind of keeps me plugged in and keeps reminding me and um, is a huge part of the moral code for me. And, and Musar has been one of my most favorite parts of it. So, um, yes, it's a big part. Thank you. Other reactions? And again, a reaction could be, actually, prayer is not a part of my life. <laughs> and that's okay, too. I think for me, it's, it's a connection to Hashem. It's, it's, it's a constant reminder that I'm not in this alone, that, that God is by my side. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he hears my prayers in ways that I would like and sometimes not. But it's, yeah. it's almost like a parent-child relationship sometimes. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I can share that um, because of the situation which I am right now, there is a lot of anger around and there is a lot of tension so i've been using and i love meditating so i've I've been using um you can't do it at 1 30 because we have hello yep go ahead sorry so i've been using this chant and this brings me really to be present, to be calm, to be at peace with all the conflict around. Um, you know, I, I cannot resolve the conflict myself, so that does it for me. So that's my connection. Thank you. And, you know, again, thanks to the internet, there are so many resources online. If people are interested in Jewish chant or Jewish uh, meditation and mindfulness, so many great resources are out there. Um, And if you've never had like a song that goes through your head that centers you um, connected to the Jewish tradition, again, uh, any of the the clergy who are connected to your synagogues will be able to point you in that direction too. Thank you, Mili. other uh, reactions just to the, the, the role of prayer or of spirituality or of Jewish ritual practice as a way to strengthen. Um, I would offer, and this was months ago, and then, sorry, Bonnie, I'll let you go, but um, I found myself, even as a rabbi for so many years, completely surprised by how emotional I got lighting candles within the first few weeks of the pandemic and the safer at home. And I like, you know, again, I've lit candles my entire life and I, and it's my profession and I lit the candle and it was like, I dropped into like every Jewish woman for thousands of years who's ever lit candles with her family. Like that, that degree of, I am just a link in this chain and how many 
people, not just women, but like how many people have lit candles to try to recalibrate their week and their life. And in that moment, take back some control from all of the chaos and all of the things that are swirling around to say this moment is about light. Mm-hmm. And this moment is about sacred time and space. Um, and so it doesn't happen every week, but it was a great reminder that lighting candles is worth holding on to just for those moments when it does click in. Uh, okay, Bonnie, go ahead. Yes, that, that was also my thought that um, my sister and I and our families shared Shabbat and dinner every Friday night for the last, I don't know, 50 years or so. And, and in the first couple of weeks when Larry and I were alone, I also had this very welling up um, feeling in lighting the candles um, and a connection to my um, young life when my grandmother taught me the, the blessing and things. But um, I actually was going to say that the synagogue community, the prayer, even though we've not been able to meet in person, it has given me a sense of support and community that that has made life much easier in the past number of months. I'm so glad. And I should point out for anyone who resonates with candlelighting, and again, it doesn't have to be, there are so many Jewish rituals to pull from. Um, Kilat Israel and the Palisades did this amazing video where they took uh, snippets of their families lighting Shabbat candles and then overlaid it with a beautiful piece of, of music. And you just see all of these different families lighting candles um, in different iterations of what family means. Um, all of it to, to what Bonnie just said, showing us that that part of the value of rituals that, uh, that we hold on to, that we, that we sort of personalize but don't lose what is in common, means that you may actually have, again, I would say a big piece of moral courage and of cultivating the courage to do hard things, is you have to feel like you're not alone. And so from thousands of years ago, Jews have been doing this, using these Torah verses, practicing Shabbat. Uh, they may have changed their melodies, but some of that is still in common. So you have like the history of people who are with you. And then in the current iteration of the community you belong to, or thanks to the internet, now you know across the, the globe watching people do what you do, um, you are not alone. And therefore your strength is not just your strength, it is everyone's strength bound together by either common language, common ritual, perhaps common purpose. Um, great. Uh, let me show you one more text and then screen share. Uh, here we go. Okay. So, and this really actually speaks to um, a few people said earlier. Um, I think it was Rennie most, most recently who said, um, I feel God's presence with me. So Joshua, Moses's successor, um, says, I charge you, um, be strong and resolute. I actually love this phrase, chazak uh, Do not be terrified or dismayed. Why? For Adonai, your God, is with you wherever you go. Uh, Psalm 23, God is with me, shadow, valley, right? Rod and staff, they comfort me. There's so many different examples from our tradition. And the question, which we won't answer now per se, but I want you to think about is, how might God's constant presence connect to the cultivation of moral courage? Um, one image I love for certain is that of comfort, uh, that of a parent who, who watches over you and protects you, who, who lets you grow up and develop and make your mistakes, but sort of within boundaried sort of ways keeps you sort of held. 
another though, um, how might God's presence help you cultivate is um, if you remember, right? Like I meant you, uh, Karen, when I said, do not stand idly by like God's presence, if it doesn't feel intimate may actually feel as if God sort of like gave us the commandment and left. So cultivating courage via God's presence may also mean allowing yourself to stay in relationship with the commander in a good way. Like that, that it's too easy to sort of, um, Again, let God be distant. Let God be invisible. Let God be something of the past. We are now modern day Jews. I experience God through my friend. I'm not trying to like to delegitimize this, but but there is value for the most important things we need to do in life. Sometimes we need to believe that someone is really paying attention to us and has higher expectations for us than we have of ourselves. And so I am calling to you because I see you. Uh, and it is not just sukkah shlomecha, a, a sukkah of peace that I put over you. It's actually, um, and again, I don't know what the stance is for whoever commands you in your life, but like, you know, like, like I'm, I see you, I see you and you need to do this. Um, uh, so just something to, to keep chewing on is, um, comfort and discomfort with what God can be for us in our lives as we try to do some of the hardest work we need to do. Um, I referenced earlier again, sort of this piece, oops, that's not what I meant to do of show and tell, uh, which is how do we tell the stories in our own friendship groups or family units, cultivating moral courage. Absolutely. Um, we talk a lot about sort of the hidden forms of institutional racism, all the ways that we built up systems that we don't even realize privilege some and push down others. I would argue it's the same thing about stories of courage. We have been privileging stories of courage for generations that primarily have to do with, I would say, very strong masculine identities, a very loud voice, uh, commanding in public revolutions. That is not untrue. It's just that we have privileged those stories and we have forgotten to tell the stories of what has been true in our life of when we've been courageous, family members and friends when they've been courageous. Um, and this is where I think, sorry, I have four and a half year old twins. So I couldn't uh, resist putting in, uh, this is the, one of the banner songs of Frozen 2 is called Show Yourself. Just a little shout out to, thank you, Elsa, for changing my life. Uh, but really what I want to get to is um, uh, vulnerability and Brene Brown, who I think for many of us revolutionized a conversation around courage uh, several years ago when she, her Ted talk sort of hit the scene. If you have not seen, uh, either of her two sort of most popular Ted talks, I encourage you to do so. But in an interview with Krista Tippett, she said the following, she's connecting vulnerability with courage. And again, I think this blows out the paradigm of what we assume courage means. Vulnerability. I think, you know, when I ask people what, what is vulnerability, the answers were things like sitting with my wife who has stage three breast cancer and trying to make plans for our children. My first date after my divorce, saying I love you first, asking for a raise, sending my child to school, being enthusiastic and supportive of him and knowing how excited he is about orchestra tryouts and how much he wants to make first chair and encouraging him and supporting him and knowing it's not going to happen. To me, vulnerability is courage. It's about the willingness to show up and be seen in our lives. And in those moments when we show up, I think those are the most powerful meaning-making moments of our lives. Even if they don't go well, I think they define who we are. So I want to say something again and then sort of open it up for final comments, which is 
I think there's a chain, a link in the chain that we're forgetting around how we cultivate moral courage, which is that sometimes the hardest thing we need to do down the road, challenging power, again, dismantling entire systems that oppress people and hold people back. Um, we don't get there because one day we wake up and we suddenly are like, hey, nanny, I'm here. I think we get there because we have to be practicing courage each and every day of our lives. And those collectively help us build up a constitution within ourselves that allow us then, when the moment presents itself, to feel like we can step forward. And what Brene is suggesting, I think, is that, again, and to the point earlier of, like, for whoever had said it, I can't remember, but, like, writing a postcard didn't feel courageous, but this other thing did. That's right. Each person has to figure out these little spaces of courage. Um, when do we show our true selves and how we really think and how we really feel? And maybe it doesn't dismantle racism in our city, but maybe it begins to start a conversation with our loved ones uh, that we've been holding back on. Or when we do something um, that is incredibly challenging and hard emotionally, supporting a loved one in our community uh, who is alone, who is sick, and not running away from that, it builds something in us. It, it changes a core part of who we are. When we are seen and when we learn to see others, we are, we are preparing ourselves um, to perhaps someday be ready uh, when we are called on um, to do something publicly that is very hard or to do something um, that feels as if we don't know what happens on the other side. It won't be because suddenly the, the quarter dropped and like, we got it, now we figured it out. It's actually because we've cultivated a lifetime of being courageous in all these different ways. And again, I would just remind us, um, not just as, as individuals, but rather looking around and seeing everyone else who's part of our web, our network, our community, that is practicing courage alongside of us, which is really, again, just such a driving home point of why being part of community is so important. That we were not meant to do this alone. Um, and I hope our tradition backs me up on that. I hope that every experience you have of your Jewish community, whichever community you are part of, reminds you the value of community and of being organized as a tribe together is that we are not meant to do this alone. So uh, it's almost 11, I guess, maybe two final comments or people have been putting stuff in the chat, which is great. You're, you're, getting, a, you're getting applause. Oh, Renee. Renee has. I hear what your opinion is, Rabbi Schatz. Oh, oh. <laughs> Put me on the spot. Um, my opinion of of the last thing that Rabbi Dara shared, or the whole the whole session. Well, you know, I think that there's there's something there's something really powerful in us thinking about this as a time where though we are alone, we are not alone. Right. Even if you are in your homes, as Bonnie mentioned, right. Even if you're not doing Shabbat with your entire family, which you used to do, knowing that there are ways in today's world to be able to connect with those same exact people that you were used to being with, or the people who used to sit next to in shul or what have you, that, that there are ways for us to, go outside of that that aloneness and really create that community and it's just that it takes a little bit more work than it used to when we used to just be able to walk to shul and see all those people now we have to coordinate it happening so and i don't mean we the clergy i mean everyone needs to coordinate their own communal um communal gatherings and and connections and to the vulnerability part i think that that's that's exactly 
it's such a beautiful quote. I was thinking really, really hard about it when Renee just called on me. I think there's something so interesting about, especially I'm a conservative rabbi and especially in what we are doing for Shabbat these days, which is using Zoom, which is not our typical norm in terms of Shabbat observance. And that many of my congregants have heard me say this before. The first time we did it, it was real vulnerability. It was not I did not feel courageous. I felt extremely vulnerable to have a computer on in my home, which you know could could suggest something to a congregant that I don't wish for it to suggest. And I think that that has opened my eyes to what it means to be vulnerable during this time. And I had never thought about it as something that was courageous. So thank you, Rabbi Dara, for bringing this to us. It's really a way for us to think about how we can we can make this better for ourselves and for everybody else by being a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more open, making our private dwelling spaces, public dwelling spaces, um, and, and creating that community like Rabbi Dara was saying. So I'm going to give Rabbi Dara the last word, but I just want to say thank you. This was just such a, as you can tell, I even being called on the spot. I was trying to think through it all as well. It really, really thought provoking. And thank you for sharing the sheet. I will download it and put it in our Google Drive that all the communities have access to. And so they can put them on their websites. They can do with them what they wish um, to have recordings from old videos as well as these source sheets. So thank you so much for a really, really powerful um, and thought provoking session. And uh, I'll give you the last... I'm sure, inspiring word. Thank you. Well, I am so appreciative of Jewett at Home, and thank you, Rabbi Schatz, for being uh, the coordinator behind the scenes. Um, great to see also so many faces. Um, I, listen, I, I'm a big believer in the metaphor of, um, of how we write our stories. Um, and so I guess I would just, what feels most important to me right now um, from like, the depths or the heights of running a pandemic synagogue, which is something I was never prepared to do, um, is I have to believe that the story is both way longer than I can possibly see right now. So this chapter feels intense and uncertain, and I don't know exactly what role, like, am I the hero? Am I <laughs> like the accountant? Like, like, I'm still confused as to who all of our characters are meant to be because the story is not over yet. And I think the same is true when we try to talk about like, how do I find the courage to stand up in this moment? What is the story that I want told about my life? What chapter are we in? <laughs> if this feels like a chapter from the 60s and it's being told all over again. Yeah. So I would just breathe into what tradition I think has left us explicitly or implicitly, which is that um, the story actually is still being written. Um, even though the Torah only has five books, Joshua pops in and it's like, Hey, guess what? Book number six, we keep going. And then the Bible's over, but then there's commentary for thousands of years. And so it's bigger than us, um, which means there is still time to figure this out. Um, and the story again, even though certain people get their own book titles like Joshua, like Ezekiel, uh, actually was always about the people, which is us. Um, so, um, let us continue to resource one another. Um, and as we write the next, next chapters together, uh, may we be strengthened uh, both uh, for, for ourselves and let us learn to strengthen one another as well.